Genesis chapter 14. Now, last week we saw uh, Lot and Abraham, and Abram at this point, they separated. And Abram decided to stay in the promised land. And Lot lifted up his eyes, saw that the Jordan Valley was lush and beautiful, and made his way east towards that location. And he continued east until he found his way next to Sodom. And now, in this text, we find out that he is actually dwelling in Sodom. So I see Lot and Abram as two paradigms for spiritual trajectories um, throughout Genesis. Lot going in the trajectory of godlessness and, and death his whole life and constantly being rescued. And Abram, who grows in his faith. So, um, in this passage that we're going to talk about today, Genesis 14, Abram is going to it rescues Lot from captivity by an overlord king, by a ruthless um, suzerain. Uh, and after that rescue, Abram meets this shadowy figure called Melchizedek, who blesses Abram while explaining the source of Abraham's victory. So this is a very uh, almost shadowy passage that foreshadows redemptive history so clearly, though. So I invite you to read with me. Um, oh, and I was praying about preaching this sermon last night in my bed as I was going to sleep. And the Lord gave me three pictures that I kind of want to structure this sermon off of right now. So the first picture is a wave tossed in the ocean. The second picture is a tree that's growing. And the third picture is a compass that points to theological north. So the Lord, I believe, gave me those pictures so I could preach this accurately of um, a wave toss in the ocean, a tree that's growing, and a compass that points in theological north. So read with me right now um, Genesis 14. And at first, I'll make it through the first 12 verses, and we'll talk about that. In the days of King Amraphel, in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of Elasar, and Shedolemor, king of Elam, and Tidal, king of Goyim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemebar, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. And all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Shador Leamor, but in the thirteenth year they rebelled. In the fourteenth year Shador Leamor and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim in Ashtar in in Ashtaroth Karamim, and the Zuzim in Ham, and the Emim in Sheva Karathim, and the Horites in their in their hill country of Seir, as far as El Paran, and the border of the wilderness. Then they turned back and came to En Mishpat, that is Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites, 
and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazon Temor. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Adma, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sedim with Shedor Leomor, king of Elam, Tidal, king of Goyim, Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elasar, four kings against five. Now the valley of Sedim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, they fell into them, and the rest fell into the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions and went their way. They also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom and his possessions and went their way. In this passage, we see a man. In those verses I read, we see a man who has become entangled in godless decisions. Um, image, the image here that I get of Lot is a man who is tossed to and fro. He is a wave tossed to and fro. He is tossed to and fro in chapter 13 by eyes of aspiration, which carry him east, which is always the wrong direction in Genesis. And now he is paying the consequences of his foolish decisions. So this section here, about kings and wars, really provides the context for how Lot entangled himself in, in, because of foolishness in the conflicts of the nations. Now, the historical, the historical context of this passage takes place in the second millennium BC. That's 2,000 years before Christ that's 4,000 years ago. This is a very, very ancient passage which talks about a very, very ancient kings and, and, and wars. And it was interesting reading commentaries on this. You could, the commentators were talking about the names and where <clears throat> and the nations that those names are derived from and they were making connections to where they possibly were from, but we know they're in Mesopotamia, which is Israel, Egypt, Babylon, Persia, that area. And so what the, the problem here is that there's an overlord king um, who demands tribute and loyalty from less powerful kings. And this happened all the time in the ancient Near East. There would be a powerful king with kingdoms and he would come and dominate other kingdoms and said, if you would stay alive with your city, you will give, you will give me produce and money yearly and you will send it on camels and I will spare your life. But if you fail one year to do this, we will come and we will take it ourselves along with your women and children. These, this was a brutal time in history. Um, so that's the context. Shador Leomer is the is the vast is the uh, is called a suzerain suzerain not suzerain suzerain. Uh, a suzerain was a powerful king, and the people that are the kingdoms that he had under control are called vassals. 
So it was a suzerain vassal situation. Now there's a rebellion though. And the rebellion is that the, the kings of verse two are rebelling against Sidor Leamor and the kings of verse one. And verse four, we see that 12 years they had served Shador Leamor. But in the 13th year, they rebelled. They rebelled by not sending produce and not sending money. And so what happens is Shador Leamor is a ruthless, ruthless overlord, and he has none of it. And he goes down apparently multiple kingdoms are rebelling against him in this way. Maybe they joined forces and they say, we're not going to do it anymore. They have done that. There's five kingdoms. And so this king, this overlord goes and he wipes out. He wipes out these people and these kingdoms that are rebelling against him. In verse five through seven, I will spare you reading the names again. But in verse 5 through 7, we see he defeats six kingdoms. Then he turns back. He turns back oh, he, and he crushes those kingdoms. Then he turns back and he defeats more kingdoms, five more kingdoms, including the kingdoms of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in verse 10, we see that they retreated and ran in the valley of Sidim. Now, First time mentions bitumen pits. These are like tar pits. And the Hebrew, from what I understand, um, is, is vague as to what it means they fell in the pits. Does it mean that they fell in running away or they hid in the pits while the rest fled to the valley? The, the Hebrew is uncertain, but the point is clear. The kings of Sodom and the kings of Gomorrah, along with their people, they're out of there. They run. And they retreat. Um, and so this is, and and then, and then the overlord ransacks Sodom and Gomorrah, in verse eleven. So the enemy, they came in, they took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah, all the provisions, and they went their way. So he has defeated this overlord, along with the kings with him. Get the picture here. He has defeated eleven kingdoms. Usually in springtime, they go out to war. So the impression we're given about this overlord is that he is powerful. He is dominant, and he is not to be trifled with. Anyone seen that movie, 300? 300, I love that. Just manly. Um, you know, it's just, it's awesome. So anyhow, it's like Xerxes in that movie. Xerxes, you know, he comes, he's this dominant figure, and he threatens... He threatens the, the people. <coughs> um, that's, what I, that's a picture you're supposed to get. He is a dominant force. And he destroys nations if nations get in their way. So that, that all provides the context for what happens to Lot. Lot has become entangled in the web he's chosen. In, verse, in chapter 13, last week we saw he made a decision. And his decision was to split from Abram, fine. To go, and he, was, he looked with his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was lush. And so he went in that direction. 
And the text specifically says that he traveled east, which is the same direction that Adam and Eve traveled when they departed from the Lord, which is the same direction that Cain traveled when he departed from the Lord, and it is the same direction that the Tower of Babel is built in with reference to where the people of God were. So he travels east in a godless direction. And um, then the, ch- the text said in chapter 13, he settled near Sodom, but here he's dwelling in Sodom. So he has made his way all the way from the promised land to the gates of hell and has actually sat down in it. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with choosing lush land. And there's nothing wrong with looking with the eyes at what is, seems right to have. But Lot is a man who is the text puts before us who constantly makes decisions without any reference to God. And he is now reaping the benefit of doing that. He epitomizes what, what it means to be a foolish man, a wave tossed in the ocean. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, what? There is no God. Now the heart in Hebrew means more than just the organ that pumps, the, that pumps blood. And it means more than just saying there is no God. The heart is the seat of the emotions. It's the center of your passions and your will. And it's the decision-making center of who you are. So the fool says in his heart, there is no God, is much more than saying the fool thinks there is no God. It's the fool who's directed by his passions, his own thoughts, and his decisions without any reference to God. The seat of his emotions, the seat of his decision making, the center of who he is, has no reference to God. That is the meaning of Psalm 14.1. So, when God tells Israel, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, he means more than just being sentimental about religious ideas. He means that your passions and your decision-making must be tuned in and have the point of reference of Yahweh and Yahweh alone. He commands the whole self to be brought into God as its reference. And Lot is an example of what a fool is. So, this is, this is simply a warning for the people of God. That in your decisions, in your thoughts for life, and as you grow and progress in the Lord, your decision making should be made with reference not first to what is a delight to the eyes, not first, not first to what might seem to to work out well for you, but in reference to God first, and even God alone. The psalm says, I keep the Lord always before me. And in my school, we used to um, begin each day with a creed that says, and I pledge to live my life always in his presence under his authority and for his glory. 
That is the way a child of God can live. In God's presence, under God's authority, and for God's glory. Not just in a vague, ambiguous way, but in your very decision-making. From the jobs you pick, to the houses you buy, to the money you pay. Keep the Lord always before you. Lot is the opposite of somebody who is a wise man. He is a foolish man. And I see him as a wave tossed in the ocean. Tossed in the the ocean of his own aspirations. Tossed in the ocean of Sodom where he was. And now tossed in the ocean of the consequences of what he has reaped for himself. Becoming victim, victimized by wars in Mesopotamia. So that's the wave. The wave tossed in the ocean. Next, we see a man then. Here's the tree. A man who displays the possibility and what it looks like to grow spiritually. Read with me verses 13 through 16. Then one who had escaped came. So this man escaped from the kings who were taking Lot and his family captive. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew who was living by the oaks of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anar. These were allies of Abram. Now when Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he led forth his trained men, born in the house, 318 of them, and went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and defeated them and pursued them to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and the women and the people. Abram is like a tree because once you plant a tree, ever plant a small tree, it's very unimpressive at first. But over time, it grows strong. Over time, it gets its roots down in the ground and begins to bear fruit. So there is a definite spiritual progression in this man's journey. He has gone from a man who is so fearful of the king of Egypt that he exploits his wife sexually and hides behind her in order to get gain to now being a warrior of a tribe who goes and risks his neck against a powerful overlord to defend his, king, his kinsmen. So Abram is told of Lot's captivity and immediately he drops everything and he goes. Um, he takes 318 men. Now, If we know anything of this overlord, it's as powerful. And if there's any impression we're supposed to get, why does, why, when you read the Bible, it gives you details for a reason. And the detail here is 318. Why would it be so so specific of 318? Because it's a very unimpressive number in light of 
the overlord's power and dominance already already defeating 11 kingdoms at this time. So we are supposed to be unimpressed with the number 318. And it reminds me of another story a few books later where a man named Gideon, his army is reduced to 300. Why is his army reduced to 300? Why? So that the glory would be to God and not to the army. Because there was no way Gideon's army was going to defeat the, um, the army that he was up against. So, Abram divides his forces and defeats them all and chases them out of the, chases them out of the land to the northernmost part of the land. The text says he did this by night. So I suspect this means a sneak attack by night. He divided his forces, so there must be some plotting and planning involved, and he is victorious. So, I see a man who has gone from being a coward to being courageous. A man who is fearful to the point that he would hide behind his wife and get gain, to a man who is now sacrificing his neck for someone who does not deserve it. I also see... Abram progressing um, by not being self-seeking. This is kind of part of what I said. He's not only, he's no longer self-seeking, but he's sacrificial. Um, Look with me in verses 21 through 23. This is after the battle. After the battle, the king of Sodom comes up to Abram in an almost unthankful way. And the Hebrew literally reads, give me people, you take possessions. Um, And Abram says to the king of Sodom, no, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, to God the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich. So, Abram took a vow to the Lord. When did he take this vow? We're not told. But evidently, he took a vow to the Lord that he would not take anything, any riches from a pagan king. How different is that from chapter 12, where again, because he exploits his wife, he is given by Pharaoh oxen, Male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, camels, and he is in luxury through a moral dubious choice. But here, he refuses to take something from a pagan king. So, I think all that to say you see a definite development in Abraham's Abraham's character, right? Abram doesn't seem to be the man he was. In chapter 12. Now he's he's definitely imperfect. And we're going to see him continue to be imperfect. Throughout the book of Genesis. But there is definite progress of character. And faith in this man. In chapter 12. He was fearful. Exploiting his wife. Getting gain. In chapter 14. Now. He is 
faithful and courageous. He runs into battle and danger to defend his kinsmen. I am so encouraged by that because it shows that God's people make spiritual progress over time. Over time, you're going to make spiritual progress. And that's why Abram is like a tree. Um, Isaiah 61, I believe, says that God's people will be like oaks of righteousness. An oak of righteousness is going to take a long time to grow. There will be an oak of unimpressiveness, and that oak will grow to an oak of failure, and that oak will grow older and stronger and wiser and develop in character and faith and hope and love. And that oak will become an oak of righteousness. My dad sometimes tells a story. And it's, this is kind of a serendipitous story because there was an old man he used to live next to, um, 90 years old. And one day he was out planting a tree in his front yard little tree or no it was a seeds it was seeds for a tree and the man uh, turned to my dad and says i'm planting this tree for somebody else and that's so true because obviously trees take a long time to grow now i think that tree is a tall tree that was about 35 40 years ago um so if you're going to be an oak of righteousness you're going to grow and it's going to take time But you will develop, by God's grace, you will develop in your character and in your confidence in the Lord. So, my encouragement and exhortation for you is don't be demoralized. Do not be demoralized by your sin. You are going to sin and you're going to fall. Do not be demoralized by that. As a child of God... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you do fail, and you will fail, strengthen your weak knees. Repent. Receive the the forgiveness that God offers you. And you continue on your journey. Do not fixate on your failure. Look to Christ in the righteousness that he gives you and, and trust that he is developing you and that you are conforming, being conformed into his image and failures are simply a step that you take along the way to grow into an oak of righteousness. We good? Babe Ruth. I love Babe Ruth. He's my, he was my favorite baseball player. I, um, you know, power. I, I once read a, a book called The Year Babe Ruth Hit 105 Home Runs because he hit 60 home runs in the majors one year. He did that a few times. And then he would barnstorm during the fall and the spring, and he hit 55 some other home runs um, during them. So um, I don't know why I'm telling you that. But um, all that to say, Babe Ruth had a, um, a saying every strikeout. Brings me closer to my next home run. Every failure brings you closer to your next victory in Christ. And Abram 
The, the man is a failure in chapter 12. The man has developed in chapter 13 and 14. And he will fail again. Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, he is called a friend of God. And he is called a man of faith. So, you, you sinner saint, can be called a friend of God and a man or a woman of faith as you grow and make progress in the Lord. Look to make progress in the Lord, like Abram. Be like a tree. Be like an oak of righteousness. All right. Next, we have the wave toss in the ocean, the fool. We have the tree, the faithful. Now we have the compass. In verses 17 through 20, we meet a shadowy figure who explains the source of Abram's victory. Verse 17, And after his return from the defeat of Shador Lemur, the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, went out to meet him at the valley of Shiva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest to the Most High God, And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Melchizedek is himself like a theological compass that points in true theological north for the people of God and has for a long, long time. You ever been lost in the woods before and have a compass on you? A compass, I, I, from what I understand, it reads the magnetic pole of uh, the northward pole of the earth, a northward magnetic pole of the earth. And um, it's going to give you a sense of direction. And that's what Melchizedek does for us here. If you're lost in this passage, what's going on here? Melchizedek is going to give you a sense of direction. He's a theological compass. So first of all, what do you know about Melchizedek? You don't know too much. And that's part of the mystery. You know that he's a king. His name means king of righteousness. And he's king of Salem, which Psalm 76 verse 2 connects with Jerusalem, Jerusalem. We know he's a priest, which is very strange. He is a priest to the Most High God, and he is actually the first priest mentioned in the Bible. And usually what's odd about that is usually a priest, if someone would be a priest, they must come directly from Abraham, or from um, Aaron. This is well before Aaron. And yet he is a priest of the Most High God. And he blesses Abram on behalf of God. It is in virtue of his priesthood that he's able to bestow a blessing on Abram on behalf of God. He says, Blessed be Abraham by God. 
the Most High. So, the, the direction that Melchizedek is pointing us is that he's pointing us Godward. Because in the scripture, yes, was not Abraham bold? Was not he courageous in this passage? He almost sounds like Hercules. He almost sounds like those ancient heroes who used to go into battle and do it themselves, right? Except, except Melchizedek comes as our theological compass and points us in true theological north and allows us to see or explains the source of Abram's victory. Blessed be Abram by God the Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. Blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now, who is the source by which Abram conquered his enemies? It's not his own heroism. It is God Most High, who has delivered Abram's enemies into his hands. Thus fulfilling the promise that Abram made to, uh, that God made to Abram in Genesis 12, 1 through 3, that I will bless you and I will curse those who curse you and you will be a blessing. So the hero of the story is not Abraham. It's not Abraham. The hero in pagan Greek mythology is always the man. The hero in the scripture is is never the man. It's always in spite of the man and through the man that the Most High works. So he points us in a Godward direction as as a theological compass. Secondly, he not only points us upward in a Godward direction, he points us forward in redemptive history. Because Melchizedek has a definite prophetic vision for us in this passage. Um... We have a man here in Melchizedek who is a priest and a king. And in Psalm 110, the Psalms, or the the Jewish people, would look at Melchizedek and apply to him the concept of a king who would come. But not just a king who would come, a king who would come and mediate the blessings of God to his people. And this became lore in biblical and even extra-biblical Jewish writings that you can see that one will come like Melchizedek. And we see this in Psalm, in Psalm 110. The Psalm talks about a man who is called Lord. The Lord says to my Lord, David says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And he continues to make promises to this Lord and this king. And he says, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110 is the passage most applied to Christ in the New Testament. And in Hebrews 7, 5 through 7, we see that Christ is the priest after the, Melchi- after the order of Melchizedek. And what is so interesting about this 
because Christ is a king and a priest. He is king of kings and Lord of lords. And we do not need man to mediate our relationship with Christ, with with the Father. We need the God-man, Jesus Christ, to mediate our relationship with the Father. And it is through him that we utter our amen to God. And just like Melchizedek brought out bread and wine, this foreshadows the meal that the new and better Melchizedek would give us in the Lord's Supper. It foreshadows the bread and wine that represents the body of Christ, the blood of Christ, and the new covenant. So Melchizedek is a theological compass because he points us to a priest king who would come in the context of victory of God's people and point in a Godward direction, allowing us to understand the source of that victory and then foreshadows the priest king who would come and put all things under his feet. With that said, today is the Lord's Supper. By, ha- by happy providential coincidence. Gary, I want to ask you to, um, to grab those elements, if you would, and, um, and we will take the Lord's Supper together. Now, if you are a Christian, this is a family meal because it represents the body and blood of Christ. The body of Christ was broken for you. The blood of Christ was spilled for you. And it is through that blood that we are washed clean of all of our sin. And that our sin is separated as far as the east is from the west. Scripture says, so far has God removed your sin from you.